Good morning, everyone. A pastor's message this morning is taken out of the book of Romans, and it'll be the first seven verses of chapter 15. And the title of the message is United by Grace for Worship. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good edification. For even Christ, not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached me, repro the, the reproaches of them that reproached you fell on me. For whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're here this morning because of Christ, because of your love for us in Christ, and because he did not despise us when we were weak. When we were still sinners, you loved us, and in that condition, Christ died for us. He became a servant to us, Lord, as he served you in your will. Lord, and as he bore our reproach, help us to see that it is our duty to bear with one another in, in our weaknesses. Lord, so that in the end, we might with one voice, in unity, raise our voices and exalt our God together and worship you. And all of these things are for the end that you'd be glorified above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to a new chapter in Romans, but much of the context is the same, so we don't have to go back and lay a bunch of groundwork this morning. But we have enough to work through in the text itself. There are two essential principles that we're working with from chapter 14 in in. Romans 14, the first has to do with the acceptance or the welcoming of those who are weak in faith. The weak in faith are those who have scruples over things that are non-essentials. They have opinions or convictions that something ought not to be touched or to be observed or that we must observe something. They're, they're in a state of, of sort of a dogmatic conviction on things that aren't essential and, and yet, because they're not essential, it's okay that they observe or don't observe or, or don't drink or don't eat or eat or whatever. It, but they have strong convictions on these things. And these people that, that are bound by them in their convictions, Paul calls the weak. And he tells the strong, don't, don't despise them. When, when you invite them to fellowship, don't make a matter of obsessing over where they fail. Don't make a matter of an evening dinner, an evening meal, a matter of correction. Oh, if I can just invite these people over, I can set them straight. And he says, don't do that. He says, don't despise them. Welcome them. Accept them. Even in their weakness, accept them. And he says to the weak, you must not judge the strong. The ones who you disagree, who do partake, or who don't observe the day that you think they ought to be observing, or do observe days that you think they ought not to be observing. This it, it, is not your place to judge them. You're not their Lord. Jesus is their Lord. And so he's, he's spoken to both the strong and to the weak. 
And in those, in those categories, uh, we have some basic principles for, for unity, but as he ended chapter 14, he really stresses the imperative upon how the strong need to bear with the weak, how they need to welcome the weak, especially in relationship to not putting a stumbling block before our brother or sister, causing them or, or enabling them or promoting in them the sense that it's okay to sin against your conscience. It's not okay to sin against your conscience. Even if your conscience is misinformed about non-essentials, it's okay because they're not essentials. You're not sinning whether you don't partake or you do partake, but if you sin against your conscience, that's sinning against God. And so Paul warns the strong, don't put a stumbling block in the way of the weak. And that's really where the emphasis on that great practical principle that if something is not done by faith with the knowledge that it's good, you better not do it. With the knowledge that it pleases God, with the knowledge that it glorifies God, if you don't believe something glorifies God, do not do it. And so the strong needs to be careful about what we promote in the weak, in their practice. Now this is a thoroughly Christian doctrine. This says that those who are strong need to withhold or restrain themselves in what they do for the sake of the weak, or what they don't do for the sake of the weak. This is not the way the world thinks always. Most strong civilizations have not seen or or viewed the weak as highly uh, in the Greek, the Greco-Roman world, the slave or the unlearned, the, the unwise were viewed as almost less than human. We've seen that recently in modern times. Darwinism, in, in the very fabric or the very title of his, his book, The Origin of Species, describes natural, natural science as the... the the direction of natural science as the survival of the fittest, right? Well, the strong caring for the weak, the strong exalting the weak, the strong putting them in a place of importance seems to contradict all of those ideas, doesn't it? It's a thoroughly gospel idea. That's what I want to say at the beginning of this. What we are considering that the Apostle has already taught us and will teach us today is that this is a Christian way of life. This is a Christ-like way of life. Yes, there were components of this in the Old Testament. So you could say this is a biblical pattern. And you don't find this outside of the Bible with authority. Let me say that. You might find this in idealism. Oh, we're all humans. Uh, you know, the, the song, we're all humans after all, right? So we're all humans, so let's just get along. Well, that doesn't get us very far when it comes to unity. Um, there's no basis at the, at the grounds if we're all just matter floating through space and there is no grounds for morality that our humanity is what should hold us together. And so we're talking about something here that's thoroughly Christian. When Christ speaks of the kingdom of God, he says in Matthew 5.5 that the meek will inherit the earth. 
Now, the meek doesn't mean somebody who's sort of bent over and wearing a hood and, and, and so humble that he never speaks or she never speaks. The meek is somebody who has power, who has authority, who has strength, and humbles himself or her health, herself. That, that's what the, the emphasis of, of the meek means. Luke 9.48, Christ said, For he who is least among you will be great, or is great. Matthew 23.11-12, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The first main point today in our text will demonstrate that this is true, that this is true. This is a true way to look at life in reality because it's true of Christ. Because it's true of him. It's true of life. First, humility as a gospel obligation, verses 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Some Christians hate the idea of obligation or law when speaking about the way in which Christians conduct themselves. I know some Christians who say, you know, it's just kind of how the Spirit leads you. That's how you need to live. You just sort of live by the Spirit's leading. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures, let me say. If that's the way you think, consider this. The Spirit inspired this word, and it lays obligations on you as a, as a, as a Christian that don't contradict grace. Because remember, the whole context of this is begun in chapter 12, verse 1, that says, by the mercies of God, all of these things follow. So this obligation follows to those who have the mercies of God in Christ Jesus upon you. Some don't want to talk about obligation they don't want to speak about it, but here Paul speaks about it very clearly. And here is, here's the obligation. Bear with the failings of the weak. And this verb to bear is used in John's gospel to describe the bearing up of Christ's cross. It is to hold up a burden. When he says, and he went out bearing his cross, that's the same verb. To bear up, to hold up. A burden. The failings of the weak are their wrong scruples in this context. These are things for which we might be tempted, the strong, those of us who would look in the mirror and I'm one of the strong, which is not the attitude to take, by the way. You're probably not one of the strong if you do that. The failings are the weak, uh, of the weak are their scruples, their wrong opinions, their wrong convictions on matters of non-essentials. These are things for which the strong might be tempted, as we saw in chapter 14, to despise them, to think little of them or of nothing, to not regard them as valuable, to think less of them, perhaps to be embarrassed by them, to see them only as subjects that need to be taught and corrected, to be irritated or scorned because of them. You think, oh, their ignorance just makes Christians look bad like me makes me look bad or worse 
to refuse them in fellowship or worship. It's incredible that the same Greek word used for weak in, this, in these verses, in verse 1, is used in Romans 5, 6, like this, for while we were still weak, same Greek word, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's going many levels deeper than what Paul is encouraging us to do. In the weakness he's describing, he's describing wrong opinions, wrong convictions, wrong scruples. In this weakness that he is using the same word to describe, is describing us in our absolute inability because of our sin to save ourselves. In that condition, Christ died for the ungodly. You're seeing a pattern here, hopefully. The strong bear the burden of the weak so as to please them, he says, for their good. He says, it's not merely to tolerance that we're called to this. You know, we hear a lot about tolerance. First of all, we shouldn't tolerate evil in the sense that we are okay with it continuing. That's the end of humanity. It's the end of human flourishing when we tolerate evil. But here, it's not merely that we tolerate the weak. That's not his point. He says, let each of us please his neighbor. He uses three ways of just defining what he means by, by how the strong relate to the weak in bearing their burdens. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The strong bear the burden of the weak so as to please them for their good, to build them up. So as not to do the opposite in any of these realms. What this does not mean is it does not mean the strong flatter the weak. It doesn't mean that the strong see the weak, oh, and we just flatter them and, and, and we, we speak about their wrong convictions or opinions and say, that's just great that you hold those. It's not what he means. It doesn't help anybody. Flattery does, I'm teaching our children about flattery these days. It's one of the great evils of our society, I believe. You, you just bolster people up in their sin. You bolster people up in their living in lies. The, the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a, a book, Live Not By Lies. It's a very Christian idea. He was a Christian. But flattery puffs up. It doesn't concern itself with truth or the well-being of people in the end. But what does build up, what does seek good for our neighbor, what does please him is love. In this very same context, that's how Paul describes it. Knowledge puffs up, he says, but love builds up. Love is the way that you see these three aspects of how we relate to the weak happen. It might seem ironic I believe in light of this context that bearing the weak to please them for their edification means most often that the strong are to restrain their rights, limit themselves, humble themselves. I think that is where love really is shown to be love in this context, that we sacrifice if we are strong. And we'll see why I, I come to that conclusion Therefore, it's not so much as what we do that builds them up in this context. Yes, there are things we do that builds one another up. 
but primarily it's what we don't do. We don't seek to correct them at every turn. We don't base our relationship with them upon if they get it right. We don't think lowly of them in our heart. We never cause them to stumble in our actions. Our love for the weak in this context is most evident in that we bear, perhaps feel the weight, the burdensome nature of their own convictions. That's somewhat what the law does. It lays burdens on us, doesn't it? And that's what he says we ought to do, to bear with them. It's important that we don't openly speak evil of them. This is something that I've seen, and I just want to mention it as a way of making sure that when we conduct ourselves in the matter of these principles, we do that not just in person, not just in this social arena, but also on that insidious sort of social media arena. I have seen so many Christians, and I think I mentioned this, go on social media and blast their fellow brothers and sisters for their scruples, for their opinions. Those fundamentalists over there that hold to these convictions and opinions. We have to be very careful. We can, we can hold to to convictions that disagree. We can even desire that they change. We can have, we should desire that the weak conform to scriptures and their conviction. That should be something of our desires. But to blast other believers in public, not only is it unwise according to the Proverbs, it's sin when it comes to these matters of non-essentials, especially. And why do I bring that up? I I think this has a public characteristic to it. There is something that when we look at our weak brother or sister, that there is something of an embarrassment that may naturally tend to be a temptation in us. Because knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? You feel pretty good about yourself if you're one of the strong. And you want others to feel good about Christians, right? We don't want Christians thinking that we're, or or non-Christians thinking that we are really backwoods people, right? We all want to be respectable. By the way, that's one of the great sins of the Christian church in modern day, is to seek respectability among the world. You seek respect among the world, you will probably begin to encourage and to be complicit with the sins of the world and the ideas of the world at some point. The sin of respectability is something to be very careful about. I believe the apostle means that if it matters that the strong bear the consternation of the weak, we do so publicly as well, not just privately. And this harkens back to how the strong are tempted to view the weak in chapter 14, verse 3. Not the one, let not the one who eats despise the one who doesn't eat. To think of them as nothing. If you think of somebody as nothing, if that's where you are, you will bring that into the public arena. 
And may God save our church from despising the weak among us. And also, let, let us be prepared that the weak will be among us. We need to be prepared about that. Everybody, every Christian comes from somewhere and is, is going somewhere. We, we all come spiritually into a condition of being babies, spiritually. And we all come from different backgrounds, have different scruples, different cultures, different customs. Just expect that there will be those who are weak in faith among us. I think that's why it's in the Word of God. I think that's why if you go back at any stage in human history, in Christian history that we have record of, you will see this truth being played out in one way or the other. So our obligation is to the weak. It's a gospel obligation. We should think of it like that. It's a gospel obligation. In the form of one who loved us while we were still weak, that's what it takes upon itself, Christ's example for us. Listen to what it says. For Christ did not please himself. For it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now that's in context of bearing with the weak. This context. So if we follow that, that context, within what, what, this example with, within what Christ did for us, this is why I come to the place where I think there's a, there's a public urgency here. Christ didn't bear our reproaches in private, did he? He didn't humble himself in private. Everything about his ministry was public. And everything about his ministry was humility. When he, was become, when he became incarnate, he humbled himself. When he lived among sinners, he was humbling himself. Everything he did in his ministry was for our sake, the sake of the weak, for the sake of his love for the Father. He humbled himself for our sake. And here was the ultimate opportunity to despise the weak, was in Christ. No one was more strong than him. No one was stronger, I should say, than him. No one had the right to despise the weak more than Christ. He was always right with what he held, and we were always wrong according to our nature. And in summary, I'd say this, that this means our weakness, our burdens were public reproaches upon Christ in this context. The whole world was made privy to his death, his weakness, his reproaches was, a, was known in the end by a public execution, which was the result of our weakness. It wasn't his that's the, that's the apostle's point. Everything that he looked weak about was your weakness. It was ours. And that's why I think this has a public nature to it. His was a public execution. He was made a public reproach. Paul's 
a fundamental point here is that he did it for us. The strong did it for us, the weak. He was despised and rejected, said the prophet Isaiah. So let us look at the example of Christ here. This is a gospel obligation to bear with the reproach, to bear the reproach of the weak. The reproach. That means when your weak brother and sister are chastised in public, you bear with them. You bear it. They're my brother and sister. Don't you talk about that. I mean, I'm not saying that you get on the world if they, don't you say that about them, but you don't throw them to the dogs. Yeah, I don't believe that. Oh, they, yeah, they're ignorant in that, that view. They're your brother. They're your sister. Second, the chief end of Christ-like acceptance, verses 5 through 7. With all the gospel-grounded principles of mutual acceptance and self-sacrifice we've learned, what is the great purpose of it all? It's, it's grounded in the gospel. We've just seen that. We, we should understand that what Paul is calling us to do is Christ-like humility. For the weak. What should be the ultimate motivation for it? What's the end? What does it produce? Verse 4, we'll actually consider more next week. But it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, this is in relationship to his referral or his referencing of Psalm 69, verse 9 there. That's the reproaches of him fell on me. Of them fell on me. That he's quoting David there. And, and I'm going to look at that next week, God willing, with the context that follows because it's important. Because the way that we see the Old Testament matters. And Paul is, is kind of inserting this here to say, yes, my reference to David there is right concerning Christ. Maybe it's a parenthesis, but we'll consider it more next week. But pick up in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement, encouragement could be translated comfort or comfort or strength of heart, grant graciously, this is a gracious supplication. He's asking God for grace to hear his prayer. You live in such harmony. Here's the end. Here's what it is. Harmony. As he's been, now, harmony is very interesting. The word is so appropriate here. Anybody know anything about music? You know that harmony, well, we talk about four-part harmony. You know, I'm not a musician, but I did take two courses in music theory that I've all forgotten. But, but some of these things are still useful. There's, there's different notes being sung in, when, when you harmonize within the same key of music. And if any musicians are here that will tell me that I'm getting this wrong, you just know that's not right. But, but you're not all on the same note. You're in the same key, but you're on different notes. You see? There's, there's, there's a unity. You're in the same key, but you're on different notes here. But harmony comes in there. The, that, that's where dissonance isn't heard. It's harmony. There's a unity there. And so he desires with these differences that there be harmony among us with one another. And then he, he says this, in accord with Christ Jesus. Paul is essentially praying that God enable us to be like Jesus, which is to fulfill what is necessary for harmony, love, humility, 
God is the source of the graces, the endurance and the encouragement here. Notice that. He's saying, may the God of endurance and encouragement, he is the God of these things. He is the means of these things for us is the, the point. He's the source of them. Enable harmony among one another. Only those who are united to Christ by faith can this be truly said of. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Very similar idea. We're all familiar with this text. I just want us to see this connection, though, because it's the same connection I believe the Apostle is drawing on in our text, and I think it's helpful to see what he means when he says, in accord with Christ, in our text in verse 5. If there is any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, any comfort of love, listen to those words, encouragement, comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, there's spiritual life here, there's harmony, any affection and sympathy, you see this union being spoken of, this is for the saints, for the union of the, the body, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." You see the importance of union with Christ? This is for everyone, the weak and the strong. If you're united to Christ by faith, you have the mind of Christ. Be like him in your humility, the way you walk. Consider others before yourselves. Love your neighbor. And here it defines Christ. This is where we see this pattern defined, verse 6. And we all know this. Who though he was in the form of God, the Greek word there is exact likeness. He was exactly in the form of God. He was God, is essentially what that means. He did not equality, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this either means that it wasn't theft for him to grab equality with God, it was his by rights, or he didn't have to because it was his by rights. It's argued about what that is. But he emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is how he bore our reproach in our text. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And let us not forget to this end that we are appointed to salvation. To this end, to what end? To be like Christ. This is what our salvation is all about. That If, if you don't desire to be like Jesus. You don't know what heaven will be like. You don't have the right idea of heaven. You like the, the not dying part. You like the golden streets part. You like the tree of life and the river of everything flowing, the garden of even, the new heavens and new earth. You like all that. You like the idea that you can eat a hamburger and not be afraid to die of cholesterol or heart disease or whatever if you're eating hamburger, probably. I don't know. But, but you like all the ideas. I like the idea of space exploration. I don't know if there'll be that. But it's about becoming like Christ. 
Remember this, Romans 8, 29 through 30. This This is salvation in a nutshell. This is before time and in eternity. This is what it's about. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. To be conformed to the image of the Son. In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. So in eternity, God chose some to be conformed to the image of the Son in eternity. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That means he'll be the first and others will be like him. They will follow after him in his likeness. And there he reiterates it again. And those whom he predestined, he will also call, he has also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, which means to be made like Christ. Everything in our salvation terminates in eternity past and eternity future with our likeness to Christ. And Paul is saying, begin that now. That has to begin now in the way that we conduct ourselves among ourselves to be like Christ. And here's the bottom line of it all. That together, verse 6, back in Romans chapter 15, this is the chief end that flows out of all of it, out of being like Christ. This is what becomes of being like Christ, that together you may one voice with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what people who are like Jesus do. Because that's what Jesus did. He perfectly glorified the Father. This is no small matter. I, I, I think there is some part of me. I've been struggling with whether I should say this because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. We're going to celebrate the Reformation next week, 504 years later. And I'm thankful for the Reformation. We all have Bibles in our laps. We have them at home. We have them on the computer. I was talking to Brother Jimmy this week. You can tell your unbelieving friends, you need to, you need to read the Bible. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. The gospel has been preached and souls have been converted because it's been freely preached to multitudes since the Reformation. And God has been glorified in it. And yet every one of us who sees the splintering of the church, and here we're a Baptist denomination, but who sees the ongoing splintering of the church should pray, should see if there's anything in them that that is driven to separate from their true brothers and and sisters in Christ. You know, the, the reformers did not want to cause a division in the church. They wanted to reform the church. They were not schismatics. 
They were not trying to break it all apart. They were trying to bring it back to what is foundational, what is essential for the people of God. And too often, we are the schismatics who lie in the lineage of the Reformation. You disagree with me, that's it. You're out, you're out. But what is at stake with that? Paul is saying here, unity, harmony, Christ-likeness ends with the glory of God. I heard so much more about separation than I ever did about unity growing up. And I love my church growing up. I think I learned very many good things. But that I regret. Yes, there has to be boundaries. There has to be limitations. There has to be con- there has to be contending for the gospel. There has to be a defense of scripture. There has to be a promotion of the true doctrine of of the gospel. That's what we've been doing in Romans, hasn't it? But we have to strive for unity, Ephesians chapter 4. We have to bear patiently with one another. Because this is at stake. The glory of God. The survival of the fittest as an idea for how the Christian conducts his or herself says nothing to us. It has no place of truth in our hearts. The idea that the strong will survive, to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Not to take obligation away from one another, But the idea that if you are weak, you live in it by yourself has no place in us because it had no place in Christ. The gospel of Christ teaches us that the way up is down, that the humble will be exalted, not merely as a moralistic truth hanging out there just in the scriptures on its own, but because our Savior is the way, the truth, and the life. Because it's true of Him. And this is the way to true worship. Remember the end of Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. This may be one of the earliest songs of the Christian church. Therefore God has highly exalted Him. This is, this is how we know. You humble yourself, you will be exalted. Therefore God has highly exalted Him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what end? To what end? You know it. To the glory of the Father. I'm just going to close with verse 7 and pray. Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Our Father in heaven, instill these convictions on our heart 
that the strong never put in the way of the weak a stone of stumbling. That when we look at our brothers and sisters who in their convictions lack all the biblical clarity that we ourselves have, that we would see Christ in his humility bearing our reproach and we would never offend the weaker brother so that in the end we would be in harmony in our worship and that our worship would be in the pattern of Christ and his life so that it would abound to the glory of God the Father. And we pray this in his name. Amen.